The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com I cherish my copy of Joseph Beam and Essex Hemphill's 1991 anthology, Brother to Brother, New Writings by Black Gay Men. It is a soaring, sensual, and at times heartbreaking collection of the writings, plays, poetry, and speeches of some of the Black gay men we lost during the AIDS crisis of the 1980s and 1990s. I cherish it because it has affirmed my unequivocal spiritual lineage to the Black gay men who came before me, and because it offers such piercing first-person insight into how black gay men lived and loved. But as I've learned from Dagmawi Wubshet, Brother to Brother is also more than a necessary testament to black gay life. It is an effervescent and enlivening demonstration of grief as a public and political act. In The Calendar of Loss, Dagmawi illuminates how AIDS mourning challenges how we have come to think about loss and grief insisting that the bereaved can confront death in the face of shame and stigma in eloquent ways that also imply a fierce political sensibility and a longing for justice. Today, we explore how political funerals during the AIDS crisis honored those who died and would die by exposing and confronting governmental neglect. What we can learn from those whom Dagmawi names disprised mourners about how we utilize our rage in our present moment and the ways queer black men maintained a fierce, erotic intimacy that would animate their legacies long after their deaths. We also share in an impromptu reading of a poem collected in Brother to Brother by Craig G. Harris, which documents and exalts the idiosyncrasies of lovers and friends who would not survive the crisis. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Dagmawi Wubshet. Dagmawi Wubshet, I can't even believe that you're here. I have been talking about you and the calendar of loss for two good years. And I'm sure that my followers on Instagram, <laughs> busy being black listeners, are probably tired of it. I'm so glad that you accepted my invitation to be in conversation with me on Busy Being Black. Thank you so much for being here. Josh, what a joy, what a pleasure to be here. 
And also just having watched your interviews and the work that you do, just an honor and a privilege that you extended me this invitation. Thank you. How's your heart? I, my heart, my heart is, how is my heart? Well, it's rare actually one asks these kinds of questions, right? Um, it depends, you know, talking to you, I feel good, right? Even though I'm sure we'll talk about difficult matters that even, you know, sharing stories is like an act of breaking bread, right? Uh, she reminds me of uh, what Baldwin says about what to be sensual, right? And all that we do, right? From making love to the act of breaking bread. So conversation is, is that too. So the pleasure of this conversation warms my heart. But, you know, um, given what's happening in this country, given what's happening in the world, um, it's not, you know, um, any given day not to have pockets of time when one is dispirited, right? So it's a it turns joy, it turns ease, it turns, you know, um, melancholy about, about life. I read this um, interview uh, on the Boston Review in the Boston Review with Judith Butler. Um, and this is from 2020, it was just at the start of the pandemic. And they said, not a day goes by under the present regime when I'm not seized with rage of one kind or another. Mm. The question is, what can be done with rage? We don't always think about that because we view rage as an uncontrollable impulse that needs to come out in unmediated forms. But people craft rage, they cultivate rage, and not just as individuals. Communities craft their rage. Artists craft rage all the time. Collective forms of crafting rage are important. They don't deny rage, but they also choose not to enter into the cycle of violence. Mm. And I'm thinking about that today and your, and your response and James Baldwin saying that to be a black man uh, in the world is to be, is to walk around enraged. I'm paraphrasing, that's not the exact quote. It's close enough. <laughs> and we're having this conversation, it's January 27th. Um, we're having this conversation on the day that the Memphis Police Department is scheduled to release the body cam footage um, of the events that led to the death of Tyree Nichols. And so I'm feeling um, subdued and a bit heavy today. What would you say, and this conversation is a pocket of pleasure for me today, so thank you again for that. What would you say to those of us, and I imagine we are a legion, who are walking around today not quite sure what to do with themselves? Where to start? I'll just say first, I very much doubt I'll see the video, hmm. right? Because I've seen enough images of him, for instance, when he was in a coma in the hospital, and that in itself is so disturbing to me uh, and just shocking, outrageous, right? And personally, I don't know what I would gain from watching that video, right? It's 
I have enough in my own lifetime. I have seen enough violence, right? In-person recorded violence meted out on Black people. So I'm not sure watching what that watching that video is what it would do to me, to my welfare, and how it would change the calculus for me. Let me just put it that way, right? But um, you know, I think we it's it's we're there's a kind of serial repetition at this point, right? Um, sad to say, we expect we have come to expect these deaths, right? So on the one hand, I'm not surprised by it, even though I'm disturbed and shocked and outraged by it. Right? I think about, you know, in Claudia Rankine's book, Citizen, where all the names of the recent deaths that she lists, because the book comes out initially, the first publication is 2014, with each subsequent publication, the, the roster grows, right? And my whole lifetime has been just one long inventory, a sequence of these deaths, right? So for me, it's how to remain being shocked and not somehow be immune to seeing the suffering and the violence of others, right? Because it can have that kind of, effect on you too, right? Like you see so much violence that you feel helpless, right? Um, so when something like this erupts each time, it's just a, 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 just a whole set of emotions that I'm engulfed by. Now, you know, with what's happened with Tyree, I was watching actually something about it last night. And I want to note that he was murdered right, by four or five Black police officers. And the fact that state-sanctioned violence, right, police violence against Black people is not meted out exclusively by white police officers, but also by Black police officers or by officers of color who, who are clothed, if you will, with the power of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. right? That's what the uniform ultimately is. So in the way we respond to his death and how people mobilize, we also have to think about undoing the system regardless of who is transacting it, right? Because I think it's just easy to mobilize if they're white officers, right? Because that narrative, um, uh, and that's the history of this country and modern world in that sense. But I just, you know, last night watching it and watching also the, the, the images, the mugshots of these officers, I thought I have to be vigilant about publicizing this and not have any kind of national, black nationalist allegiance deter me from amplifying the murder of this young man, right? Cut down in his prime, 24 or 25, right? Something like that. 
father of a child, right? Again, uh, what is he saying in his last, uh, he's calling out for, to his mother. I actually, that I, I, I turned off the TV when I heard that. Um, I just think about how anxious my own mother gets when she hears these stories and she would get a call seized by emotion. Um, so I'm saying many things, Josh, because this is exactly what these things do, right? Like they elicit uh, all the things that we've experienced as people of color and as people of color, where we're so adjacent to violence. I think one of the aspects of the calendar of loss that I appreciate most is the re-engagement with the work of our elders and ancestors um, that has shaped me. I mean, I have Milk, Honey, and Liberty tattooed on the back of my arm from Essex Hemphill's poem. I give you promises other than milk, honey, and liberty. I assume you will always be a free man with a dream. So I've got brother to brother right here. Um, a first edition, I might add. Oh, yes, indeed. I recognize that. <laughs> um, and I understood as I was reading, I've cried many times reading the poems, particularly in Brother to Brother. But before encountering the calendar of loss, I had I had almost understood it as a as something in the past that I was engaging with and that I looked back on mm with loss and longing. And I think after reading the calendar of loss and indeed during, yeah. I was like, ah, these are messages. These are missives. These are criticisms. These, this is awakening and livening, right? It, these, this work lives, right? Mm -hmm. And it is enlivened by those of us who continue to take it in and appreciate it and respect it in new ways. And so I was really thrilled um, to encounter your work that way too, to give even more meaning to works that were already um, inspiring me so much. Yeah, with, with, thank you. Uh, and, you know, my own introduction to that, the body of work that Extraordinary Generation produced was just by virtue of coming out and trying to be corroborated by other people who look like me and their stories, right? So this is like circa 1998, 1999. And the, you know, of course I'm reading your Baldwins, your Audrey Lords, a different generation, but I was thinking of what is the latest things that black queer folk are writing? And much of that body of work was by that generation of your Melvin Dixons, your Essex Enfields, your Joe Beams, right? Your uh, Marlon Riggs, a many of saint, yeah, a saint, my spirit oh. twin. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, many of whom died 95, 96. So I'm reading their works really two, three, four years in the wake of their passing, right? So just that immediacy had a different grip on me. And also the fact that like the accident of time, right? Had I been just a few years younger than, and you know, younger and active, sexually active, that would have been my lot, right? 
Uh, so it had that kind of uh, immediacy to it. And also just the extraordinary courage and brilliance of, of these writers, these artists, right? Like facing their own imminent death, facing the death of lovers and friends in uh, a generation, right? Of, of, of gay men amidst a public that wished them dead, right? To speak so boldly, fearlessly, and do it with such incredible creative force, that to me was, this is what literature is. This is what the arts are. Um, so, and when I went into graduate school, this is when I'm discovering their work early on. I had no agenda of writing, because uh, uh, the calendar of loss started out as my dissertation. I had no, I didn't have an agenda of writing about this material, but it had that kind of force that that's what compelled me to write about it. And even, you know, I grew up in Ethiopia and I moved to, to the U.S. at 13, right? So the kind of racial violence that we're talking about was something that I had to discover rather late. Like I didn't have, my parents didn't have the talk with me, like as a black child in, in, in America, because I grew up in a all black country, right? But that black country that I grew up in, in the 1970s and 80s was also seized by a different kind of violence, right? Uh, political violence. And death in that context was also ubiquitous. Uh, and there was a way in which the state, uh, the dirt, the military uh, communist junta used its power, right? Uh, to silence dissidents and would kill them and display their corpse on the streets, have families pay for the bullets that were used in the execution. Like that kind of harm waged not just on the living, but also on the remains of the dead. And that reading that material in a totally different context of queer men in the United States also had these echoes of my upbringing in Ethiopia. So it just, it's a work that had, that opened up not just kind of a direction of thought, but also like, you know, conjured up different parts of my, my experiences. You know, the word that popped into my head is relational. Like it's a profoundly relational offering, both in its kind of how, how you metabolized and expressed it, um, and also how we engage across time and space um, mm -hmm. with those who are long since dead, and even not so long since dead. Um, you open the book, the introduction with the, uh, I'm going to call it a spectacle, the spectacle of, of Tim Bailey's uh, 1993 funeral. And for listeners, Tim Bailey was um, one of um, ACT UP New York's Marys and was, um, uh, had willed that his body be used um, in a political fashion. He wanted it tossed over the gates of the White House and onto the lawn. And after some um, finagling with his friends and loved ones, um, they agreed 
to have an open casket procession. Um, and it was met with force. Obviously, Washington, D.C. police are afraid of the dead. But we're not. I'm not. I'm a Mary, and I'm part of Tim's family. In this van right now that I'm standing on top of is the body of Tim Bailey. We had planned to march through the streets and to go to the White House with the lid off to show all of Washington, D.C., all of the American public and all the world, our friend and our loved one who died of AIDS. But he is just one of the 200,000 people that have died of AIDS. What is it going to take for Bill Clinton and the American public to wake up? Do they literally need to see a body? There is one AIDS death every five minutes. If we need to fill out a permit every five minutes, we will do so. And we will start from this spot, and every five minutes we will march another dead body down to the White House. So can you talk about why it was important to open the calendar of loss with Tim Bailey's funeral in particular? Mm. Well, of the kind of the repertoire, right, of creative political responses during the early era of AIDS, the initial, um, uh, you know, uh, decade of the AIDS crisis, I found political funerals to be incredibly compelling, right? So we talked about the, I found the artwork, the poems that I love that I engage in the book, but also political funerals as a political and an aesthetic gesture. So when Tim Bailey wills his body on his deathbed, when he is willing his body to his friends, to the, to the Marys, to act up, he says, I want you all to do something political and aesthetic. He uses that word. Mm -hmm. I want you to do something political and beautiful with my body. Right? Um, so it's an, an action clearly that has explicit political uh, purpose. Right? You are displaying the body of someone who died of AIDS and really government malfeasance. And we know in early, in, 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 during the AIDS crisis, part of the challenge was showing the public that we are indeed dying, mm. right? Like uh, all the ways in which activists would interrupt live broadcasts to, to, to say, this is a peripheral news. This is an urgent national matter. Right? So they had all these antics of um, exposing the silence. Right? And one way they sought to do that was by showing the very body right? the public refused to see. So, you know, the, the ways in which, say, a, 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 an organization, a group like ACT UP, used repertoires of death as a political instrument. So you have the Dians, for instance, that act up kind of adopted from sit-ins, uh, but also the open casket funeral. Right? Like, of course, this isn't the first time that uh, act up, you know, we have, of course, a famous example being uh, Emmett Till's 
uh, open casket. Yeah. Uh, that was one of the key pivotal moments of the modern civil rights movement in the United States. Right? Well, it's one of the, it's, I've been exploring how, um, I mean, just personally through conversations with elders who are still with us and through the writing of like Guy Akingem, for example, the and the Gay Liberation Front's um, ongoing work here in the UK, is there is a through line from the civil rights movement to the gay liberation movement. And there is an even more specific through line, I think, from the funeral of Emmett Till in 1955 to these kind of very um, vocal public displays of mourning and grief, a la the open casket. I'm also thinking of, I think it was the uh, Parisian ACT UP group who did things with blood Mm. or what appeared to be blood rather um uh, yeah absolutely absolutely so that gesture to me was which uh, is so incredible and think of the foresight think about the generosity right to say use my body i don't know what life awaits me whether there's an afterlife, whether my soul will live on, but this thing will perish, right? But use it, right? Let it, let it have another life. I mean, that's the thing that's so powerful is Tim Bailey has died, but we see in that political funeral, his body lives, his remains continues to have another, another life, another political identity. And that to me is an act of generosity, right? That has enormous political power. So for instance, the quote that you mentioned by Judith Butler about rage, I hear that, but the thing I want to harness is my generosity, to be honest with you, right? Like the thing I feel because, you know, rage, I'm a black gay man who is 46 years old. I have enough rage to last me many lives, <laughs> right? Uh, but the thing I want to harness for my own welfare, for the welfare of the people who love me, and the, the and uh, uh, and as a thing that opens up solidarity, is my generosity. Yeah, and. I think generosity is a really beautiful way of holding rage as well, because you oh, need yeah. genero you need generosity, a self generosity, um, to allow this. I hope this isn't a silly example, but <laughs> I'm working on being more spacious with myself. Yes. So I believe in the in Reverend Angel Kyoto's formulation of love as spaciousness. I really, I really believe that. And it's for me, the most capacious understanding of love that we create within ourselves enough space for people to show up as they are. And I have found that I'm not often giving enough space to myself to show up as I am. And part of that is listening to my body, what my body needs. And yesterday I was really tired and I was like criticizing myself for being tired. Why are you tired? And like, you can't go to sleep. You've got so much stuff to do. And then I read a poem and this poem was like rest. And so I went into my room and I slept. I gave in, I surrendered to my body, right? I, yes. I surrendered to the space that I needed. Um, and so I, it's, I, it's probably a silly example, but no, I love this, this generosity. It's, it's an apt example. 
it's an apt example. And you're making me think of Baldwin's definition of love in the fire next time. Love takes off the masks we fear we cannot live without and mm -hmm. know we cannot live within, right? That entails, that definition of love has political content because it's saying we have to be fearless in the world, right? It's saying we have to be generous to ourselves and then to the world, right? So sometimes I think our idea of the political can be narrow, right? Like the emotions of the political can be narrow, but we have ample evidence, ample history. I mean, I think, again, to come back to love, I think about the very movement that ended up appending American apartheid was based on love. We would not have, you know, think about uh, civil rights movement and non-violent militant action. Mm -hmm. The Southern, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Christian uh, SCLC, uh, Christian Leadership Conference, right? Without agape love, Dr. King's in speeches, in sermons, right? In his writings, philosophical writings, what was the backbone, the anchor of that movement? was agape love, right? Yeah, we and I, I, that. <laughs> yeah, and I don't recall in the calendar of loss, love and agape being part of that conversation about grief and mourning per se, even mm -hmm. if it's, even if it's, you know, the animating essence of grief in the first place. Um, and so maybe I was reading too literally as well, that grief naturally only always is, uh, is a container of rage and loss, right? It's also, yes. who was it? Elizabeth Gilbert, I think. I, don't, I hope I'm not misattributing this quote, but I think it was Elizabeth Gilbert, Gilbert that said that um, to go to spaciousness and generosity, here it is, hello, synchronicity, that um, we never get over a loss. We never move through it. It's a, it's a myth, but actually that we expand to accommodate the loss. Yes. And I think, to be honest with you, it's like, it's such a Western notion too. the idea of like, like quickly overcoming loss or somehow loss in due time dissipates, right? Like I come from a tradition where, you know, like the calendar of loss, even that gesture for me is part of my makeup as an Ethiopian that, you know, when someone dies, the wake days are so elaborate. You have the first day, you have the third day, you have the seventh day, you have the 40th day, you have the 80th, the one-year mark, the seven-year mark, right? And I have seen a, one of my aunts at the seventh-year mark of the passing of her sibling weep as if the death had taken place the night before. Wow. Right. So I come from a culture that, oh, loss has its own, like mourning has its own elaborate and extended calendar. You know what I mean? Uh, which is a very foreign, uh, maybe concept to, you know, like a Western framework of loss and mourning. Busy Being Black returns in just a moment.
I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. I'm in conversation with scholar and author Dagmawi Wubshet, whose 2015 book, The Calendar of Loss, has had a transformative impact on the ways I engage with the writing and art of the elders we lost during what Jafari S. Allen has called the long 1980s. So to bring it back to this current moment, and in a culture in which death and the spectacle of death is drip-fed to us, as we were saying earlier in our conversation, what can we learn from the work of our elders and ancestors about utilizing death as a lamentation for action? I think of, of the, the kind of 80s uh, to Shafari in that incredible, extraordinary book. It is true. The, to think about the, the long 1980s, in, 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 in so many ways, we are living in the shadow of the 1980s. The 1980s, the things in terms of our political order, uh, in terms of the way neoliberalism becomes deeply entrenched in that decade, um, the way in which queer politics takes on a different, a new life, a new urgency. So many things set in motion in that decade that we are still in the immediate shadow of that decade, right? But I think about that generation in the face of that death, in part because it's to ensure their literal survival, Think about all the different organizations that came up, right? So, of course, we have something like ACT UP, right, as a, a political, uh, an explicitly po political organization. But I think about collectives. I think about other countries, a brilliant, you know, cultural collective that included, you know, our, 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 our luminaries like Asato Singh, like Joseph Bean. Right. Um, so, um, and that, that's just one example, but there were so many different organizations, right? Political, aesthetic, or create, uh, that combined the two that came out of grief, right? So, the point I'm trying to underscore is it's easy to, for grief to actually isolate you, but it takes a different kind of effort to coalesce grief into collective action, right? So I think about one of the things, certainly in the past, what, four, five, six years of Black Lives Matter has been that when you think about it, right? It's the harnessing of our rage and our grief, right? Harnessing that into a collective movement, to demand action. And we know power, you know, power reacts to collective action and not just simply individual uh, plea, right? Um, so that, I, so for me, that's the challenge, right? Like how to mobilize, right? Uh, and, and, and coalesce that into, into something larger than you, larger than, than yourself. Yes, thank you. Because I think we can look at a collection of, of poems, essays, insights, a long list of the dead, and, and think that's all that it is, right? Is that it's a gathering. But I think you're underscoring a really important point that brother to brother as just one example is the harnessing and the mobilization of grief yes. to create 
this body of work that would continue to live on and mobilize and inspire, hopefully. Absolutely. And collectives, you know, I mentioned Black Lives Matter because it's the most obvious example, mm-hmm. per se, and it's, you know, global movement now. But I think about, so with other countries, for instance, right? So most people haven't heard of other countries. It's a collective of Black gay uh, authors, activists, creative uh, artists. And one of their members, Donald Woods, who, you know, dies of AIDS, was out in his personal and political creative life. And when he died, his family at his funeral tried to deny his queer identity, deny the fact that he passed away from from AIDS. And it was a a Sato saint who stood up at his funeral and also other members of other country to disrupt that funeral and ensure that their beloved was interred and eulogized in you know, commensurate with the way he lived and loved, right? So I think of that collective. Now, this is conducted in a private funeral, but it is that collective and one of the members of that collective that decides to interrupt, right? Uh, 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 Such a, really a violent undertaking when you think about it. So collectives can be, sometimes we fetishize collectives, they have to be, you know, national or whatever, global. That's not the case. That's not the case. So in talk, I've mentioned Walter Brueggemann's The Prophetic Imagination um, already, but in talking about grief in particular, I'm reminded of something that that he wrote. He was writing about the ministry of Jeremiah as a model of ministry as radical criticism. Quote, the most radical criticism of the prophet is in grief over death. Hmm. And this, at the time, I made frantically making notes, made me wonder if collectives, collections, radical criticizing, prophesizing in this way, if one of the ways that we honor both our living and our dead is by kind of welcoming a a preemptive grief, right? It's one thing for us to respond or react in grief, and quite another to hold a book like Brother to Brother and metabolize it in a way that we can be, that we can act preemptively so that we don't have to be brought to our knees in grief every time. That, is this what you're talking about, right? That there was this embodied, emerging, <laughs> you know what I mean? Is this making well, sense to you? Oh, completely, but I, okay. I, 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 so I don't know that citation, but I, I love that expression of preemptive grief, right? Because, you know, it's like, you know, the, the, the thing in the book that I talk about, the idea of compounding loss, right? That if you come out of a certain tradition, then you don't have a, a kind of an innocent picture of the future. Right, like the future is a, a horizon of possibility, but also possible death. Right, uh, just to be a queer person, to be a black person. Right, that we could be subjected to 
arbitrary debt at any point, at any time. I'm not naive about that. And in fact, I cannot afford to be naive about it. You see what I mean? Uh, I don't have that luxury. Now, by virtue of not having that luxury and by thinking about the possibility of my future death, then that gives me a different makeup, a different constitution, if you will, right? Uh, and I think it gets at ultimately also just a, a, a larger human phenomenon, conundrum. Uh, again, to come back to Waldo, he says, life is tragic, right? History is bloody, <laughs> right? Like, if I were to write the entry on history, right? Like you Google, put it in, 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 in dictionary definition or the very first thing I would put is baladi, right? Uh, so coming out of say, as I do, okay, African-American say literary tradition or cultural tradition, I have a very different orientation around death. Personally, but also just philosophically, because there's a whole tradition that's given us a different way of thinking about death. And there's a thing that again, the Baldwin says about death date. In many ways, it's like the preemptive uh, thing, right? Where he says, my death date is on the calendar somewhere. And I actually believe it. Initially, when I found it, it was a, a kind of shocking thing to think about. But I know. Now, God forbid, I hope it's some ways off, but I know my death date is on some calendar. And sometimes I think about that. Like that date is just, wait, it might be just chilling. Wait, it's like, oh, Dagmawi, I wonder. <laughs> right? Uh, so in anticipation of that, then I, I don't know, I have to conduct my life maybe in a different kind of way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, um, I do, I, and, and, and I do, Josh, I'm, I'm not being facetious or whatever about it. I do mean that. I mean, I know my life could be taken away at any moment, even as I pray for a longer life. You know what I mean? Um, and this is also something I must say, you know, the calendar of loss came after the calendar of loss came out, a book about a generation that was so formative to me that I love, that I prize. I ended up serial converting in 2017. Right? Now, 2017 is not, you know, 1987 or 1990 or even 1993. Right? So I don't want to exaggerate. Uh, also, as someone who has access to the latest antiretroviral therapy, um, you know, uh, being HIV positive doesn't immediately uh, put me on the path of, you know, uh, imminent uh, death. But that said, it's made me think about the scholarship that I produce mm -hmm. with some remove in a very different way right, in a very different way uh, that I do, that my very life now depends on the taking of a medication, like literally depends on 
a pill I take in the afternoon each day. I, God forbid, if that was to be, you know, uh, interrupted, disturbed, then actually my life does hang on a thin thread, right? So the idea of death is not, you know what I mean? Like, mm. and it's I do. Abs- it's not abstract. It's not abstract. It's not mm. abstract. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. When I take that pill, it's a daily reminder that that shit is not abstract. You know what's uh, so funny? Thank I'm you for sharing. Your show. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you can. It's our show. We okay. can do what we want. Get little, uh... <laughs> I appreciate you sharing that. And yeah. you know, the thing about taking a daily pill, I it, it was January 2018. I had just been to pick up my prep from uh, the sexual health clinic because here in the UK you get it free on the NHS. And well, at the time you didn't, I was on a trial for, um, they were testing two different kind of prep medications and I was on the trial. So I'd gone, I just got back from the doctor. I sat down and I um, was like looking at the bottles and I remember going, huh, for the first time I thought, cause I'd started taking prep a year before. I thought, huh, this little blue pill <clears throat> is, I feel like I can hear the disco. I can hear the 70s. I can hear the screams of the 80s. It is billions of dollars and millions of lives and mm. hours and years of activism and interventions and people people demanding a future that they were not necessarily ever going to live so that I could be here prancing through Soho with prep yes. and a pair of hot pants on, you know? Like, and I think, so I think, death is still an abstraction for me in that sense but the weight of uh, i don't want to say the responsibility the weight of the pill if you will yeah as that reminder um connects me to the living and the dead i think and josh you know we enjoy this privilege of having access Mm -hmm. access to pill and we know around the world including the U.S. people continue yes, because, to diabetes. because we know the global South is not demarcated by latitude. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Yeah. Thank you. Right? The death. Conti- I mean, like some of the, the highest death rates in this country are with Mississippi and Georgia and the American South, as you rightly say. Right? Um, and so the other thing that we have to think about too is somehow, and this is something actually quite deliberately engineered by conservative gay pundits after 1996 when um you know these kind of life-saving cocktail drugs become available to say oh that past is over right uh just to shed the burden of that narrative of aids or homosexuality equals aids all of that and to say oh this is no longer a disease that affects us this is these are like, you know, white gay pundits like Andrew Sullivan has a notorious essay that appeared in the New York Times magazine called When Plague Ends in 1996. And it says, oh, we're fine now. This is an issue of continental Africa, the global south, right? Et cetera, et cetera. Or uh, minority populations within the global north. <laughs> yeah, right? wink, wink, yeah. Wink, wink, wink. Right? So, <laughs> This the the 
the discourse around AIDS, the, the public, the popular discourse around AIDS has changed in a way that we think AIDS is something of the past and not, yes, it, it's not the same death toll, of course, but it's still a disease. Um, had, you know, if people were granted the kind of, uh, that blue pill that we have access to, then it wouldn't be an issue. But, you know, these discrepancies, uh, inequities, continue to exist, right? Uh, and I, I, I want to say about, you know, talking about disclosing my, my status, uh, and I'll share with you a per, a recently a personal essay I wrote about it, because there is no way, like I would be doing a disservice to the legacy of Essex Symphony. I would be doing a disservice to the, Essex, to the legacy of Sato Saint, right? If I'm saying in a scholarly monograph, like these are the people, like I owe my life to them, then it's imperative on me, even today when the stigma of being HIV positive is still there, right? Let's talk about that too. Like it's rare that you actually, people disclose like, in, you know, in intimate settings, friends disclose, right? But I think about that gesture that they had of I'm a black gay man, I'm HIV positive, like, disclosure as a part of their identity in a way to make it less of a shame and a stigma for others to come after us. So I feel like I have that kind of moral obligation to myself and to the generation we dearly love and to whom we owe, you know, in effect this conversation, right? You reminded me of Catherine McKittrick, who says that storytelling is is also mostly about leaving those little liberatory clues. Oh, oh yes, indeed. Right. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you have a copy of Brother to Brother? I do. Uh, where is my brother to brother? Brother to brother, brother to brother. Yep. <laughs> I love that you sing it as well. Brother to brother, brother to brother. <laughs> Hello, we have the same editions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great. I love that is it. That's so cool. Hey, Josephine. Oh, you know what? This just this brings me joy. You know, to your oh. to your question about earlier, how is your heart? Yeah. You you know, we began the conversation with how is your heart? Well, yeah. we raised both of our books. Oh, my heart feels good, right? <laughs> and I think about, you know, like um, Melvin Dixon in that um, that speech he gave at Outright, and it's included in the in, in, in um, Love's Instruments. Mm -hmm. I'll be somewhere listening for my name, and then he tasks us. He says, "You, you know, with your good health, with your broad vision, right?" Uh, you know, to call our name, to call out our name. So just the fact that we are, you know, uh, calling their names, they're somewhere listening for their names. So that, 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 that gives me joy. That gives me joy. So I want to, maybe we should try something. Craig yeah. G. Harris, um, page 148 in Brother to Brother. Hope Against Hope. 
Mm. There are five stanzas, as it were, or five parts. Mm-hmm. Maybe we don't need to read the whole thing. Maybe the first four. Okay. Or the first two. I'll take one, you take one. Okay. Beautiful. You start you start with Mark. Okay. Mark with a C. Stephen with a V. And a hyphen in between. Thank you, he'd explain. And God help you if you spelled either incorrectly. Couldn't cook to save a soul except for baked chicken and steamed broccoli. Couldn't match his clothes and I never found him particularly handsome, but he was my first true love and a seminal thinker. He could interpret Kant, Descartes and Fanon over breakfast or half asleep, pump out a more than respectable first draft of a one act in two hours or less, and recall every line Joan Crawford ever spoke before a camera. Besides, he was incredibly sexy. When sweat irrigated his bare rib cage while he twirled under Danceteria's strobe lights, he swore no virus would beat him, armed with rose quartz and amethyst, homeopathic remedies, Louis Hay's Louis Hay tapes and the best doctors and San Francisco general, he fought it like a copperhead going against a mongoose. When he lost, we all wore purple, tucked him in white satin with his crystal shields and thought of Icarus soaring towards the sun. Jamil was what he preferred to be called even though his mother still called him Glenn, pronouncing both ends. It had something to do with rites and rituals and the Baha'i faith he tried to practice. He was 6'6 and built like a linebacker, the last man in 96 West the night we met. Made me feel like an eager virgin on the Jerome Avenue Express uptown home. His full lips peeped out from bristles of beard that tickled my cheeks and thighs before he turned over on his stomach, demanding service. When I heard, I made the trip to St. Luke's Roosevelt to find his spirit, drained by Bactrim, isolation and embarrassed relatives. He asked me to write his story, an assignment I declined, suggesting he start a journal. We'd publish once he was well. He did, and during later visits, I proofread each entry. When he stopped writing, his mother discarded the pen, folded his hands, donated the journal to the church with the condition it be cloistered, and stored his memory in Woodlawn Cemetery. Mm. That's one of my favorites in, in the whole collection. And I, I'm glad we're not going further because I will absolutely yeah. start crying. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I haven't looked at this this poem in a long time, and I'm looking at my marginalia. <laughs> yeah, incredible! Wow. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you for doing that. Um, and I think for me, this answers the question I had earlier about what what we learn from our elders and mm-hmm. ancestors via the calendar of loss. Mm-hmm. Is as you've talked about today this 
you have reanimated them so that we can reanimate ourselves, mm. right? Mm. Yeah, that's what I think. That's, wow, it's so powerfully put. That's so powerfully put. Um, yes, and to learn, I mean, like just the loop, the fragment, we haven't even read the, the full poem, the fragment that we read. You know, the other thing, Josh, I find so extraordinary about this generation, the way they've also licensed our uh, licensed us as erotic beings. Mm-hmm. In many ways, they're carrying on the work that uh, Audre Lorde told us about the uses of the erotic, the erotic as power, right? Like, think about it. This is a poem, this is an elegy of men, lovers who've died. But what is there? Like, oh, I'm getting like that, the sweat. <laughs> on the, like desire, sex, sensuality, touch, all of it, like our erotic imagination and life is also part of the equation, part of the poem. So I want to keep that alive too, right? Like we still live in a very conservative world, right? Uh, and we know queer conservatism is also its own Listen. Uh, right? Don't uh, get me started. Right? So, I mean, that's the other thing, right? To license how we are as sexual beings, right? And I never want to lose sight of that. And it was unapologetic. If, if even amid a crisis, we could be unapologetic about our desire for each other, about yes. what Andreas Weber he, Andreas Weber defines the erotic as a hunger for more life. Mm. Right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Hunger for more life. Absolutely. And so eroticism in the context of crisis, in the, con- in the context of catastrophe, of pandemic, of virus, becomes life-giving, right? That, that even if we can extend our lives together materially in this moment, that it's still worth the attempt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Most definitely. Dagmar, we're out of time. All right. (laughs) I would honestly love to take you through every highlight I have and every note I've taken. I would really love to. Um, Josh, can I say usually it takes me, maybe it's a hip in me, it takes me at least three, four cups of coffee to, to get me going in the morning. I'm just finishing my first one. I feel like (laughs) <laughs> I've had like shots of espresso. You just, I feel this conversation just early in the morning on a Friday morning makes me feel so alive, mm. alive and present, fully engaged, right? And sensual, if I may say so myself. Yes, you can say that. <laughs> I will absolutely take that. All right, so... <laughs> I mean, just again, a joy, a joy, a joy. I expected it. Would, I didn't. I mean, I knew we would reach some higher ground, but I didn't know how, what path we would take. So, I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. Dagmawi Wubshet is a scholar of African American literature and art at the University of Pennsylvania, working at the intersections of African American, LGBTQ, and African studies. You'll find links to his work in the show notes.
Busy Being Black is an exploration and expression of queer liveliness. And my guests are those who have learned to live, love, and thrive at the intersection of their identities. Your support of the show means the world. Please leave a rating and a review and share these conversations far and wide. As we continue to work towards futures worthy of us all, my hope is that as many of you as possible understand Busy Being Black as a soft, tender, and intellectually rigorous place for you all to land. Thank you to my friend Lazarus Lynch for creating the ancestral and enlivening Busy Being Black theme music. Specialize in die-cast metal miniature gun models that you didn't know you've been looking for. Called Goat Guns. Ah! Yes, Goat. They are the greatest of all time gun models you can display on your desk. Buy, build, and collect them. We offer a 90-day return policy if you don't love yours. Start your collection at GoatGuns.com.